Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the podcast that helps you unravel Swedish history one building block at the time. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last time and see what happens to King Magnus after 1280. So listen to the last episode if you want to catch up on the early years of his reign and everything else that happened in his life. Everything will make a lot more sense this time if you've listened to that first. But before we do that, as is our custom on a flat pack history of Sweden, we're going to talk about our Swedish phrase of the week, which this week is a nice and short one, Spela Allan. Literally translates to English as to act like Allen or to play Allen. So how does one act or play like Allen? And who is Allen? Well, I can answer your first question quite easily because this is a rather common phrase or proverb in Swedish. So I'm familiar with its use. To spela Allan, to act like Allen means to act tough or cocky or sort of full of yourself. Uh, you might say that if, say, you were at a party and there's someone there just bragging about all the cool stuff they do and, you know, puffing their chest out and being all like, ooh, look at me, I'm so cool. Then you could say, oh, look at that person over there who is Spela Allan, who is acting like Allen. But your second question, who is Alan, I must say, I had no idea. I didn't know where this phrase came from and why Alan, and not Sven, was the name we used. Obviously, it's almost impossible to say for sure how a phrase makes it into colloquial use, but this phrase, spela Alan, seems to be relatively new, maybe from the 50s or so. And one theory that I found as to why the name Allan is used, uh, that theory was put forward by Swedo-Finnish linguist Mikael Reuter, who says that Allan refers to the American actor Alan Ladd, famous for playing tough guy roles in popular movies from the 40s and 50s. Considering how popular American cinema was in Sweden at the time, and arguably still is, this seems like as likely an explanation as any. Interesting. So there we go. Just act like Alan and get all tough and cocky, just like Alan Ladd. That's a very interesting phrase. But moving on from the Swedish phrase, let's get back to King Magnus. Like we said, do listen to the first episode we did about his reign, where we covered his early years, his intense fighting with his older brother Valdemar after he became king, his fighting with Denmark, and not least the creation of Olsno Stadga, an important document outlining not just new legal practices, but also in effect creating the rights and privileges of a defined nobility in Sweden. Yes, and now that Magnus has done all that, and in particular gotten the nobility on side with Alsnostagda, he makes sure that he continues to also have the support of the church. This is formulated in a letter of privilege from 1281, and in essence it gives the same important privileges to the members of the church, the bishops and the priests, as Alsnestagda gave to the nobility, namely that they are officially exempt from tax. And again, that's not just 
cash tax, but also the tax that was paid in yield from land owned by the church. This similarity between the privileges of the church and the privileges of nobility can be seen in how they're both titled, like we mentioned last time. Both groups were frelsa, meaning redeemed or freed from. The nobility was earthly frelsa, and the priests and the bishops were the spiritual frelsa. Both were important functions in medieval Swedish society, and both had, thanks to Magnus and the actions that he took in the early 1280s, been tied closer to the crown. As Nastagdern, the privileges for the church are, in many ways, part and parcel with an expansion of the state network, and in particular an expansion of the tax system that happens in the 1270s and into the 1280s. The tax system is run from different castles and grand houses around the country, because remember, this is a time when tax is mainly collected in physical goods and not money. It needs to all be gathered in one place where they can look after it. Towns are also growing, and their rule is becoming part of the state network too. An example of this is Stockholm continuing to grow, and in the 1270s many other new Swedish towns are founded, such as Vestavik and Urebro. Magnus's work with the church wasn't just a business matter, though. He seemed to care very much about his personal faith as well. In particular, he seemed to favor the little brothers, as the Franciscan monks were called. They had founded a monastery in Stockholm in 1270, after arriving in 1268. They settled on Kidskär, which is now called Riddarholmen, part of the old town or Gamla Stan in Stockholm. As part of their new monastery complex, they built a parish church a few years after moving to Riddarholmen. Magnus's fondness of these new Franciscans uh, is evident from two key decisions he makes. Firstly, he chooses this parish church to be his gravesite long before his death. We know this as the Swedish archives have a copy of Magnus's will signed in Skara on the 22nd of February 1285, quite a few years before he dies. Uh, sorry, mild spoiler there about what happens to him. Yes, and that's really cool that uh, we're now getting to the point where almost every episode we've got original documents that have now survived into the Swedish archives. That's super cool. Absolutely. Uh, the will says that he has obtained papal permission to be buried in the Franciscan's church with neither let nor hindrance on pain of excommunication. So he's saying that if his sons or wife or future uh, politicians decide to have him buried somewhere else after he dies then basically be excommunicated. The Pope has said that he has to be buried in this place. And, yeah, he really wants to be buried in this church. And naturally, by extension, this is telling you how important Stockholm as a whole is becoming at this point. The king is demanding to be buried there. Yeah, very cool indeed. Secondly, in his will, Magnus also chooses to donate a large sum to the Franciscan's order's founder's grave in Assisi, the founder being Francis of Assisi. The Bielbu family's favorite home church in Vaughnhem also receives a large donation in his will. All the other cathedrals and monasteries in Sweden are also mentioned in the will, as is 
every parish church in the parishes that have royal estates in them. So Magnus really cares about the church. He isn't just using it as a political tool, although he's definitely doing that as well. The church seemed to like him back. After Magnus's death, a decree was issued across Sweden that every priest in the country would hold a mass in his memory on the day of his death every year. That really is some commitment. Um, I didn't check that they still do it now. Um, presumably it stopped at some point. Yeah, it's not still done. Might have stopped uh, around the time of the Reformation, I'm guessing. Um, but either way, it's nice to see that uh, King Magnus got something personally out of this nice relationship he had with the church. It wasn't just business, I guess. <laughs> Definitely. And life isn't all work and business and hanging out at the church for Magnus. He also has some time to spend with his family. His wife, Helvig, that we introduced in our last episode, is actually the first Swedish queen that we know had a coronation. So that's pretty cool. Good for her. Shows how important having a strong woman next to you was for the kings, that they actually started to ceremonially exalt the role of queen. Helvig's coronation takes place in Söderköping, a small town in Östergötland, so that's sort of in the east of Sweden, south of Stockholm, but not on the coast. And it takes place on the 29th of July, 1281. And what is also interesting about this is that that's actually quite a few years after they were married and after Magnus's coronation. Maybe they wanted to wait for all the fighting and turmoil to die down a bit, or maybe they just thought of the idea then. Oh, wait, let's let's do this. Yeah, I mean, I would have probably waited a bit, at least. Uh, after all, Magnus doesn't seem to have much spare money around to pay for a lavish ceremony, so he might have had to save up for his wife's big day as well. In a quick side note, one indication that at least some people were trying to tighten the purse strings in 1281 is the fact that Sweden's big architectural project, the building of the new Uppsala Cathedral, is delayed that year due to a lack of money. So, oopsie. Uh, we'll return to this a bit later. So, Magnus and Helvig go on to have six children together, two girls and four boys. Uh, once again, we don't know exactly when any of these children were born, but later historians have determined that it's most likely that they were born between 1277 and 1285. The first child is a son that they name Erik. Sadly, Erik died when he was just a year or two old, and instead, it was their second son, Birger, that Magnus named his heir in 1281. Keep that name in mind, because Birger will return as we journey through the next decades of Swedish history. But for now, he's just a child, and of course, he's named after his grandfather, none other than Birger Jarl. Very nice to keep a new name uh, going down through the mm -hmm. years in the family, rather than just uh, Eric and Sverker and uh, Ingeborg. 
Magnus and Helvig actually recycled the name Eric after their first son died, and that's the name they give to their third son and fourth child overall, Eric. Speaking of interesting naming choices, even though Magnus had spent so much time fighting his brother Valdemar, he then names his fourth son Valdemar. That is odd. You would have thought the name brought back memories of all the problems he had with his brother. But maybe he just really liked the name, regardless. <laughs> also, after all, it does seem like they had only about four or five names on the approved names list uh, that they were just all recycling over and over. Everyone's named the same thing in this time period. And, as always, marriage alliances are powerful political tools. And just like his dad, Magnus has no qualms about using his children as pawns on a political chessboard and marry them off to create alliances and further his political gains. Perhaps in an effort to improve relations with the Danes... His son and heir, Birger, is betrothed to the Danish king, Erik Klipping's daughter, Merta, or Margareta, as she's sometimes referred to. This happens already in 1282, when the two are just toddlers. The marriage will have to wait for quite a while, obviously, but they had decided on it. We will come back to Magnus's oldest daughter, Ingeboy, later on, but his other daughter, Rikissa, maybe shared his uh, interest and uh, liking for the church because she doesn't marry. Instead, she becomes a nun at St. Clara Abbey in Stockholm. She moved into the priory there when she was just six years old. And so... Unfortunately for her, she isn't in the story much at all. She's just in a monastery. Yeah, maybe she didn't have a choice to like it or not. <laughs> she was just sent there. Yeah, true. You know, making life decisions when you're six years old is uh, also perhaps not something you do. No. Um, but it's not just his kids that Magnus gets involved in politics with. Despite the fact that his older brother, ex-King Valdemar, is now sitting in self-imposed exile down in Denmark, and his brother Eric, who was aligned with him in the fight against Valdemar, is dead, Magnus does have that one brother left, his youngest brother, Bengt, who is busy being the Archdeacon of Linköping Cathedral, a position he's held for over a decade at this point, because he's getting involved in church business from a very young age. In 1284, Magnus decided it was time to get his brother more involved in earthly politics as well. After all, he's now around 30, and Magnus's would-be right-hand man brother, Eric, is long dead at this point, so maybe he feels like he needs a family member having a little bit more political power rather than just him. And the decision they take means that Bengt actually gets quite an important and precedent-setting job. We've seen how Finland has become more and more important in the Swedish historical story up to this point. We dedicated the entirety of episode 42 to cover the history of Finland up until now. And we've seen not just in that episode, but also in other events that we've covered happening during the time of the 1100s and 1200s, showing the fact that Finland has become this more integrated part of the Swedish kingdom. 
For example, in 1276, Orbu became its own bishopric. The bishop in Orbu and Orbu Cathedral is an important basis for Swedish rule in the area, and Magnus wants to continue not just this expansion eastwards, but also his own work of tying Swedish society closer to the crown. He does this in the east by assigning a special person in the court to look after Finland. And who better to do this than someone who is already closely tied to him and the court as his brother. And so, in 1284, Magnus makes his brother Bengt the Duke of Finland. A new title just for him. Ah, good for Bengt. And it doesn't stop there, uh, as just two years later, he gets another promotion. Now, if the Bielbu family could be said to have two family professions, one being the ruler of Sweden, then the other would definitely be Bishop of Linköping. And so, as if fated, Bengt gets that job in 1286, expanding his CV. So, in two years, he gets first the Dukedom of Finland and then also Bishop of Linköping. I mean, that's quite a rise. Uh, let's just forget the blatant nepotism that his brother is king. Exactly, because like Orsa says, this is very much a family profession. Both his uncles, uh, Karl and another Bengt, had been Bishop of Linköping before, so he's following in the family footsteps. It does make sense, though, uh, with the church being an important player in spreading Swedish rule throughout Finland, having the Duke of Finland, who is essentially the governor when looking at the American political system, it's a bit like that, to have him also have a religious role would only have added to the power of Bengt to get things done. However, it seems like he spent a lot more time working as Bishop of Linköping than he did being Duke of Finland. Magnus doesn't just appoint his brother Duke of Finland, but in general he expands the number of formal positions within the royal court as well. Again, this can be seen as part of his overall work to expand and solidify the role of the state and tie all aspects of it closer to the crown. During Magnus's reign, the royal council becomes more and more evident. In hugely simplified terms, this can be seen as an early form of government, although we're obviously centuries away from any form of democracy. Nevertheless, the king and the council are the most defined power structures that we've seen so far in Sweden, and while the council will change shape and form over the centuries, it will endure as a basis for state power from now on. Under Magnus, the council gathered yearly for talks on how to rule the kingdom, and with the formalisation of the council came a bunch of new roles and titles. Three of these will pop up from time to time from now on, and one of them is actually one we've seen for a while, but it's now much more formalised. And these roles are councillor, drots, and marks. All very odd-sounding words. Councillor <laughs> is simply the Swedish form of the word chancellor. Being councillor could mean many things, and it seems to have varied somewhat depending on the king that you served under. In its most general definition, a councillor was an aide to the king, who sometimes headed a special unit within the rule of the state, a so-called kansli, or chancellery in English. 
We've seen these positions pop up every now and then in our history so far. For example, when the Bishop of Skara became the Chancellor for Eric the Eleventh in the 1220s, leading the Regency Council for the young king. This was the first we heard of the advice knights, or Rådsherre as well, uh, that a lot of our listeners on Twitter seem to like. In fact, it seems like Magnus's brother Bingt served as his chancellor for a brief period early in his reign. He is mentioned in a letter as his brother's chancellor in 1277, but seems to give up the title quite soon after. I mean, then he becomes both Duke of Finland and Bishop, so uh, you can't then also be Chancellor, maybe. And he was Archdeacon of Linköping Cathedral at the time, so yeah, he's a very busy man. He's a man with a lot on his plate. Exactly. And yeah, so we have this Chancellor or Chancellor, and then we come to the Drots. The Drots was a state office tied to the administration of justice. Quite simplified, but we can think of it as our modern ministers of justice, or attorney generals. Whilst the role was tied to the crown, the drot seemed to have been slightly more independent from the king than other roles within the state or the council, perhaps since it was concerned with concrete matters of justice and law, rather than the ever-changing political matters that were going on around the country. Finally, we have mask, a military role. Again, the use of the title changes over time, and depending on which king is in power, it might have more or less responsibility. Sometimes it seems to be no more than an honorary title for a member of the nobility, whilst at other times the mask becomes a very much a real job and functions a bit like a commander-in-chief for the whole army of the kingdom. Mask is a title that we only find during the Middle Ages in Denmark and Sweden, whereas Kanslor and Drots seem to have been roles and titles that were inspired by already existing practices down in Germany. Yeah, so once again we're really seeing the German influence on Sweden at this time. This has probably helped from the fact that Magnus is continuing the policy of trading with the Germans that previous rulers have been working on for decades at this point. And at some point in his reign, the German influence in Sweden on on his rule is so strong that at least one of the members of his royal council is German. Now, the 1280s was starting off a lot calmer for Magnus and for Sweden in general compared to the 1270s, and he's been able to focus on domestic politics a lot. We've talked in more detail about his work with the nobility and with the church and his formalization of the royal council and various office holders, but it's worth to also mention that he strengthens the Swedish crown's hold on the island of Gotland. He also makes sure that the inhabitants of another island, Öland, pay their taxes in a more regulated way. And he successfully mediates in a conflict between Norway and a collection of German cities. Basically, the forerunners of the Hanseatic League, who we talked about in our episode about Gotland, had actually been blockading Norway as a result of a dispute. Magnus summoned the two parties to a meeting in the summer of 1285 and allows both sides to plead their case and submit evidence. 
He then spends a few months debating how to solve the problem before asking the Norwegians and the Germans to Kalmar, where he announces his decision. He comes down on the side of the German traders. This act as a mediator really strengthened Magnus's look as the strongest, most competent leader in the Baltic Sea, at least when compared to Norway and Denmark. I'm imagining it's sort of like one of those reality programs, and it says, and the winner of the dispute between the Hanseatic League and Norway is... The Hanseatic League! <laughs> and then fireworks go off and stuff. That's probably not how he announced his decision, but I hope he did. Nah. He called like the court of King Magnus, and that would be that would be the the way it was uh, advertised around Scandinavia at the time. I mean, at least that's the way he does it inside your head. Yes, which is the most important thing. <laughs> but uh, do continue telling us more about Magnus and the Baltic. Well, being seen as a strong leader was helpful because the Germans had been eyeing up Gotland and were ready to start another quarrel after Magnus had started to strengthen Swedish royal control over the island. But they seem to have thought the better of this after his display dealing with the Norwegians and favouring the Germans. Then they let Gotland go. Because remember, at this point, Gotland is sort of quasi-independent from Sweden, and so by Magnus trying to assert more control over the islands, you can see why the Germans would be a bit more worried that they might lose their privileges in places like Visby. So this is a good opportunity for Magnus to show them, well, actually, I'm a person you shouldn't trouble with because I can solve all these problems. And so uh, that's why the Germans eventually decide to not try and uh, kick up a fuss about Gotland. Hmm. Magnus's actions throughout the first years of the 1280s helped create a stable situation in foreign relations and also strengthened royal control at home, like we saw with Erland and Gotland. So maybe it looks like it's all sunshine and roses for King Magnus now. It seems like it, but it doesn't mean more drama can't happen nearby. And if it's going to happen anywhere, drama is of course going to happen in Denmark. Exactly, the magnet for drama. <laughs> Denmark has suffered generations of royal conflict at this point, and Magnus gets drawn into this, unfortunately, but partly because he's created alliances with the Danish court by betrothing his son and heir to the Danish king's daughter. And also partly because Denmark is where his old nemesis and brother, former King Valdemar, is still living. Magnus clearly doesn't trust Valdemar. I mean, he's done nothing whatsoever up to this point to warrant any trust in him, so that's not surprising. But even when he's in another country, Magnus is a bit suspicious. And in 1285, he's so suspicious of Valdemar that he declares himself Valdemar's guardian, essentially saying that Valdemar is not fit to look after himself. Initially, though, this doesn't do much in practice, because after all, he's in another country. However, the following year, on the 22nd of November 1286, King Eric Clipping of Denmark is murdered by, surprise, <laughs> a group of rebelling noblemen. Yeah, being king of Denmark was very much a dangerous job in the 1200s. 
most of them seem to have been murdered. Although, to be fair to him, Eric Clipping lasts a lot longer than the others. He was king for 27 years by the time he bit the dust. Either way, it's all quite complicated over there. Uh, Just another time when I've been reading about it uh, and I've been glad that we're not a History of Denmark podcast. Quite. Uh, Just our brief mentions of Denmark is enough to confuse (laughs) us. So now there's one more to add to the list of slain Danish kings, and successions are always tricky to manage. Magnus doesn't seem to have mourned the death of Eric Clipping for very long, though, but instead gets straight into making sure that he's on friendly terms with the next king, Eric's son, Eric Menved. Another Eric. And Eric Menved is only 12 years old, though, so Denmark is going to be ruled by a regency council headed by his mother, Dowager Queen Agnes. And Magnus moves forward in a very effective way. Soon after Erik Klipping dies, he solidifies an agreement to ensure that his daughter Ingeborg will marry the new king, young Erik Manved, when they're both a bit older, because they're both kids at this time. So this is double the fun. The Danish princess is married to the Swedish heir to the throne, and the Danish heir to the throne is married to the Swedish princess. Uh, So it's a brother and sister marrying a brother and sister. I mean, they must have all really wanted to be friends. Yeah, in the nation's uh, relationship between uh, Sweden and Denmark, they really wanted to get along. And uh, nothing confirms this like marrying your children with one another. This is how medieval bi-national relations are carried out. And sometimes it seems like this is what they did instead of just signing joint declarations or holding press conferences with another like countries do today. Would have been weird if they did that today when uh, this like uh, US, Australia, Britain agreement that happened if if they had to then also just, yeah, now we're going to marry our kids to each other. Uh, Perhaps because of the tumultuous times in Denmark, or perhaps because he thought he'd try one last shot at the Swedish crown, or perhaps for some personal reason, we just don't know, but in 1288, Valdemar leaves Denmark and returns to Sweden. It seems unlikely that Magnus would have invited him back, especially judging by what happens next. Because this time, perhaps wise from all previous altercations and finally starting to enjoy some domestic stability, Magnus doesn't give Valdemar a chance to even get going in Sweden. Magnus arrests Valdemar right away and puts him in house arrest at Castle Nyköping's Hus. And just to be on the safe side, he throws Valdemar's son, Erik, in there as well, who is now about 16 years old. Son Erik will eventually be released and go on to hold high positions in both Swedish and Norwegian royal courts. But unfortunately for Valdemar, he's uh, effectively shut in and the key is thrown away. 
Officially, Magnus claims that this is because Valdemar was not of sound mind and because his sinful way of life caused disgust amongst the Swedish people, naturally referring back to Valdemar's sex with nuns scandal. And to what extent that is true, we don't really know. It could be that Magnus was just so fed up with his older brother constantly trying to take the crown back that he decided he'd just keep him imprisoned once and for all. This is house arrest, though, and he is a former king, and it seems like Valdemar was able to have the company of several mistresses to uh, make sure his life and his day-to-day activities were as fun as possible uh, <laughs> in some way. And that does seem to be one of his major life passions as well. But this does seem a bit strange, I guess, when you're imprisoning your brother because he has a sinful life, only to allow him to live with his mistresses. But... Either way, he's behind lock and key, even if it is a relatively comfortable prison. So we have now reached the late 1280s, and King Magnus and royal power in general in Sweden is really stronger than ever. This is demonstrated by his harsh response to another potential crisis that emerges between the crown and the nobility. The focal point of this latest conflict is in Westergötland and concerns the family of a lawman called Algot Brynolfsson. Algot's son, Folke, went against the now established peace laws and kidnapped a noblewoman by the name of Ingrid and took her to Norway. The kidnapping became a matter of royal concern not only because Ingrid was the daughter of Magnus's good friend and member of the council, Svante Polk Knutsson, but she was also betrothed to the Danish nobleman and drots-to-be, David Torstensson. Hence, the kidnapping threatened to have repercussion for foreign policy if the king didn't act fast. And act fast Magnus did. He made sure that not just Volker himself, but the whole family was punished. Volker's father, Algot, was captured and only released after his other son, Brynolf, who also happened to be the Bishop of Skara, promised to make sure that his dad and the rest of the family would stay in line and not do anything that might harm the king. Annoyingly, we don't know what happened to Volker himself, the one who did the kidnapping, but he was presumably punished too. Magnus doesn't seem the kind of king to let him get away with anything and once again Magnus has acted forcefully perhaps historians have argued to set an example and prevent other noble families from acting up because this is the first time someone's really done anything big after these new laws stipulating the rights of the nobility have come into effect so this is the time to show your strength as the calendar clicks over to 1287 Uppsala Cathedral returns to the story After running out of money earlier in the decade, they've now brought in a real expert to try and fix the problems there. This expert is Etienne de Bonneuil, and he is a French architect, uh, perhaps obvious by the name, Mm. and a master builder. He's actually going to be taking over from the original architect who was also French. Unfortunately, we don't have his name, but he's going to be the second main French master builder at the Cathedral of Uppsala. And we have a note written in 1287 by the Provost of Paris, a bit like the mayor, detailing Etienne's contract. And it says... To all those who read this letter, Renaud Lacrasse, Provost of Paris, 
gives greeting. We make known that before us appeared Etienne de Bonneville, to be Master Mason and Master of the Church at Uppsala in Sweden, proposing to go to said country as had been agreed on, and he acknowledged having rightfully received and obtained advance payment of forty Paris livres from the hands of Messrs. Oliver and Charles, scholars and clerks at Paris, for the purpose of taking with him, at the expense of said church, four mates and four yeomen, seeing that this would be to the advantage of said church for the cutting and carving of stone there. For this sum he promised to take said workmen to said land and to pay all their expenses. And then the contract has a very interesting bit about uh, what should happen if Etienne and the other French guys actually die. And I guess if they put that in the contract, that's something that might be quite likely to happen. It says something about travel in the 1200s, I suppose. Yeah, so what does it say? And should it happen that said Etienne de Bonneville or the mates whom he has consented to take with him to the land of Sweden should perish on the sea on their way, owing to storms or in some other manner, he and his companions and their heirs shall be clear and absolved of the entire above-mentioned sum. And then we actually have uh, the final paragraph as well, where it says... In witness whereof we have put on this contract the seal of the provost's office at Paris in the year of grace 1287 on the Saturday before the feast of St. Gilles and Lou, August 30th, and now have sealed the transcript of these papers with the seal of the provost's office in Paris on the day indicated above. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, I love it. We actually have the whole contract here, but we've uh, only read out certain bits of it because it's quite long. But yes, uh, Etienne arrives the year later in 1288 and really kickstarts the project. He doesn't seem to have changed the overall plans that the original architect had uh, come up with, but he seems to have been brought in to sort out all the problems the project had had at the start of the decade to do with the money and the delays and everything like that. And there was also an indication that there were problems with the actual location physically, how the ground was laid out at the site of the new cathedral. However, Etienne was also credited with designing the cathedral's chapels at its east end. That's all very interesting, but whilst this is all happening... Magnus is busy with his full-time job as a firefighter in the sense that he puts out problems all the time, not that he runs around with a bucket of water putting out actual fires, because there is, of course, time for one more major problem for our king. There's always one more major problem for Magnus. This time, it is in the ambiguous half-domestic, half-foreign policy area that is whenever the Swedish king is dealing with Gotland at this time. Although after he expanded royal control over the island in 1285, it is definitely falling more into the domestic category now. Like a lot of places back then, but also today, there was a huge difference in ways and quality of life between those living in the countryside and those living in towns and cities. Gotland had the town of Visby, 
which was also the main port. This was where the German, Swedish and Gotlandic traders worked from, traded in and sailed to. Visby was hoovering up money fast in the 1200s, and in the 1270s and 1280s, the residents had decided they wanted to build a proper, sturdy, stone defensive wall encompassing the entire land side of the city. They'd already got a watchtower, today called the Krutornet, the gunpowder tower, which watched over the harbour entrance. This was built in the 1100s and actually makes it the oldest surviving non-religious building in the Nordic countries, which is very cool, very good distinction to have. Anyway, the merchants of the town have decided that once the wall is finished, they will tax anyone bringing goods into Visby to sell. This is obviously intended to make money from the visiting German traders as they're bringing in quite a lot of goods, which means a lot of taxes raised to help pay for the wall. The wall is then completed in around 1288, and it's a quite a formidable piece of work. This wall was 5 to 6 metres tall, 16 to 20 feet, and had raised platforms at various intervals along the wall, and had arrow slits for archers for defending the city. So, admiring their new walls, the merchants must have been very happy. It was very impressive. However, they weren't done, as one day, a clever merchant thought of another idea. How about we tax people bringing in things from land, too? There wasn't a kind of residence discount, was there? No, no, there definitely wasn't. Oh, this quite understandably really annoys the farmers and Gotlanders living elsewhere on the island. They would now have to pay taxes to the merchants of Visby just to visit their own capital city of the island and main trading market. Before the walls, they could just walk in, but now they have to pay for the privilege. Uh, literally pay for the gates to open. They argue and argue and argue with the merchants, but the merchants won't listen. Getting nowhere with their protests, the farmers and peasants of Gotland decide there is only one thing they can do. Go to Sweden, meet with the king, and persuade him to intervene. The only problem is... Gotland is, of course, an island. And where do you think all the boats were kept? Visby. And how do you get to the boats in Visby if you live in the countryside? Go through the walls, which are controlled by... The merchants! It really is a pretty handsome scheme. Feeling like they have no other choice, the peasants quickly turn into a mob which then grows into a peasant army. From the sounds of it, this really is torch and pitchforks kind of stuff, and the mob starts moving towards Visby. Even the merchants can't just let this happen. They gather up their considerable arsenal of professionally made weapons and head out to meet the mob. A battle was fought at a place called Hergebrew, where the merchants were, perhaps unsurprisingly, victorious, mostly thanks to their superior weapons and organization. However, the peasants didn't give up, and the groups met again at the monastery of Roma, where they fought again. 
This time, it seemed to end in a stalemate, meaning there could potentially be yet another battle on Gotland's soil soon. This is when the island's priests get involved, pleading with everybody to just stop fighting, at least until the king could get involved. And get involved he did. Just like with his uh, mediation between Norway and the German traders, Magnus ordered the two sides to send representatives to meet him in Sweden, and they come to Nishaping. This is where his brother Valdemar is imprisoned, <laughs> so maybe he could also show them his brother as motivation to talk, as he's still locked up in prison there. If you don't agree a peace treaty and stop this fighting, you'll join my brother. And so in August of 1288, they met there, and Magnus made them hammer out a treaty, the Treaty of Gotland. Magnus demanded that the merchants paid the peasants of Gotland 2,000 silver marks of the superior Gotland kind of coins and 500 other silver coins as compensation for their unfair practices. The king also decreed that he would settle all disagreements in the future, agreeing with the Visby merchants that in principle the Swedish king was now the highest authority on the island. And to make things worse for the merchants, Magnus said it was illegal to stop peasants travelling to Sweden to petition the king. So it seems like the peasants have won. Apart from, of course, all their dead relatives who had died in the fighting. And there's actually nothing in the treaty about the gate taxes, so we don't know if the original issue was actually solved or not. Either way, the real winner is, of course, Magnus. He always makes sure he wins. He now has effective control of Gotland, and Visby itself has a great defensive wall that he didn't even pay for. Uh, another job well done by Magnus. Something a bit different, but still quite interesting, also takes place around the same time, in 1289 to be precise. According to the Erikskronika, the Erik Chronicle, this year sees Sweden's first knighting. It includes none other than the king's own son and heir to the throne, Birjor, who is dubbed a knight along with around 40 distinguished noblemen. That was very cool. It must have been a very fun uh, ceremony to be a part of because becoming a knight really is quite something. The ceremony is inspired by similar ceremonies on the European continent and in fact the whole system of knights, which we talked a bit about last time, is something that Sweden's definitely imported from the European continent. The many German kingdoms... France, England, they've all had the practice of knights for a fair while from this point, and it finally reaches Sweden. And I guess that makes it easier. You just copy and paste <laughs> the instructions from the English uh, royal knighting ceremony. <laughs> Maybe that's what they did. Knights and knighthood might be one of the things we associate most with the Middle Ages. So it's good to see that it finally reaches Sweden. Uh, as is often the case, I mean, it was the same with, say, Christianity. It gets here a few hundred years later, but nonetheless, we're now on board with the whole knighting thing. By the time 1290 rolls around, Magnus is at the top of his career. An example of how this is noted, not just in Sweden, but across Europe, is that he gets a gift from King Philip IV of France that is really quite something. Uh, what do you think the French king gave him? Uh, I don't know, some nice French wine? 
No, it's even better than that. Baguette? <laughs> no, even better than that. Onions? Even better than that. And stop naming French stereotypes. <laughs> A model of the Eiffel Tower? No. Um, a stripy jumper? No. A poodle? No. Cheese? No. Croissant? No. All of Normandy? <laughs> Garlic? <laughs> no. Um, it's even better than all that. King Philip gives Magnus a thorn from the crown of Christ. Yay. I mean, you might not think that's a great gift, but trust me, if you lived in medieval Europe and you were a pious Christian and raced in this strictly religious climate of the time, you would have loved that gift. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure I would, but personally, I'd prefer the wine. And did the thorn come with, like, a certificate of authenticity? Because he probably just went to his garden and picked a thorn off a rose bush and says, oh, just give this to the king of Sweden. I bet he believes this is from the thorn of Christ. <laughs> I mean, relics are notoriously difficult to validate. But either way, and sadly for Magnus... He doesn't get to enjoy his cool new thorn for very long uh, because as the year draws to a close on the 18th of December 1290, to be precise, Magnus dies. We're not sure exactly what from, but we know he got ill towards the end of his life and that he dies peacefully at Visingsö Castle on the island of Visingsö in Lake Vietton. And since we don't know the day that he was born, we also don't know exactly how old he is when he dies. But most historians put his birth around 1240, as we mentioned, so that makes him in his early 50s, or perhaps just 50, when he dies. Magnus is buried at the church he helped support, the Franciscan church on Riddeholmen Island, the now known as the Riddeholmen Church here in Stockholm. And that makes him the first Swedish king to be buried in Stockholm, an indication of how much the city has grown in importance by now, and also how much everybody in Sweden put on the diktat from the Pope, that if he wasn't buried there, they'd be excommunicated. So they listened to the Pope and Magnus, which was good for him. His grave in Riddarholmskyrkan was opened in 1914, and then again in 2012, We'll post photos of his grave on social media and our website, by the way, as we went there uh, to visit at the end of summer. Uh, based on an analysis of the skeleton that they did when they opened his grave... Yeah, not when we went there in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we didn't analyze the skeleton. Uh, we're able to deduce a few things about what Magnus looked like. He was fairly tall and had a large forehead. Hmm... His remains also show signs of him having heart and lung problems, which we might assume could have contributed to him dying when he was only around 50 years old. That makes sense, and he managed to pack in a lot of stuff in those 50 years. Mm. Now, here's a bit of interesting trivia about Magnus that we haven't mentioned at all up until this point, but we should probably say a few words about before we wrap up the episode, and that concerns his name. Not Magnus, but the nickname he has, and the one that everyone in Sweden knows him by, if they know him at all. Yes, because whilst he's referred to in English literature as King Magnus III of Sweden, 
He is in all likelihood the first real King Magnus, but as we know, Swedish regnal numbers are messed up beyond repair. Uh, the first two were usurpers, thinking all the way back to Sverker's time. To avoid confusion, in Swedish, we just call him Magnus Lodulos. That's what he was called in my middle school history book, and that's what many historians refer to him as, and it's what the street that's named after him here in Stockholm is called, Magnus Lodulosgatan. So why this unusual nickname? Well, the fact of the matter is that we don't know for sure, as uh, lots of occasions on in this podcast so far, we don't know for sure, but there's some really fun theories we should share. Ladulos doesn't mean anything in Swedish, but the word can be split into two. Ladu and los. Ladu, or lada, means barn, as in the farm building, and los means lock. So you could say that ladulos means lock on barn or lock the barn. And this leads to one of the main theories as to why Magnus got this nickname because he regulated the practice of yesening with Article 1 of the Stadga. He put locks on barns, meaning he regulated that travellers couldn't just walk in and stay wherever they wanted. Yeah, I remember this is what we learned in school about why he's called Lodulos, this whole lock on barn thing. But... As we said when we talked about Stadga, he didn't really actually lock any barns. Uh, the practice of yesning continued. He just made sure the farmers got a bit of compensation for it. Although he did lock the king's own barns, so maybe that's what it refers to. So actually his name in Swedish should actually be something like Magnus Lås min egen lada. Yeah, Magnus locked my own barn. Yeah. <laughs> The two other theories behind the nickname that I've heard is that it is a Swedification of a Slavic family name like Ladislav or Vladislav from way, way earlier in his family history. But we've been unable to find anyone going back in his family tree with that name. Uh, so that seems unlikely. The other theory is that he kept a lot of grain locked up after the crown had collected it in tax. Well, all these theories sound quite unlikely, although perhaps the barn theory is the most likely. And Magnus himself most likely didn't know that he was called Ladulos. The name isn't used in any contemporary sources. In fact, it only starts to appear in Chronicles more than a hundred years after his death. So perhaps some later sources wanted to big him up a bit and applaud him for his extra regulation of the yesning by giving him a cool nickname. Uh, we don't know. Exactly. We just don't know. But it's good to know if you want to find out more about him and read more about this period that you can sometimes find him under the name Magnus Lodulos, especially in Swedish sources. In English sources, like we said, he's usually referred to as Magnus III of Sweden, and he called himself Magnus Birjolsson, since he was the son of a Birjol. Indeed. So three aliases, or perhaps four, all referring to the same man. But then again, as we've seen, he was, just like his dad, a powerful ruler who both strengthened the crown and made sure that his personal rule was felt by his subjects. 
Next time, we'll continue our journey and see what happens when Magnus's son, Birya, takes over as king. Because, spoilers, he does do that, despite being just 10 years old. And we've seen what happens when uh, young kids get the throne previously, so we think you'll enjoy the story. Yeah, basically, having a 10-year-old as king is, is not a great idea. Exactly. So strap yourselves in, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, because if you think that Valdemar and Magnus's reigns were tumultuous and that they fought each other a lot, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Young Birger and his brothers will eventually take sibling rivalry to a new level and bring the Swedish kingdom with them into some serious internal fighting. They sure will, but let's not spoil what happens next and instead... Just say thank you for listening, and until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can find our handy family trees and a list of the source material we use, among many other things. Yes, and leave a review if you'd like to on the platform of your choice. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, doll.